about like you have to it's not just necessarily going straight to full time i mean over time will it be you know people contracting like in the military where you do a short tour right you do a short tour you do a short run you do a few months if you like it you continue on and you like it you go up you go up it's like there's steps for you to go up um, and get more involved but if you don't move on because it's got to be something you really that resonates for you so anyway this is just on the employer side um and the clients that we work with when they get it you can see how people love it there and you can see how they attract talent differently and the people when they attract them they resonate with the company and they become stewards and rep you know not stewards, but like ambassadors of the company genuinely. It's interesting. Well, I think that's as good as time as any, Angela. You've been listening to Angela Ye, founder of Ye Ideology, and I'm Sean Bender, who's a talent strategy account manager at Ye Ideology. And uh, we've actually been discussing and sort of working with this a lot behind the scenes, just in terms of how we're evolving as an organization, but also like really trying to figure out where our clients are evolving. And Angela, I think you're really kind of hitting on a really interesting point, the sort of conceptual idea of self-organization. Um, like there's a lot of companies that don't necessarily, uh, like, like even I would say yours, other small companies, like when they start out, there's not necessarily like you were describing this perfect pyramid, but rather over time, it organically forms into something. And then eventually gets to a certain size where you have to codify that, build that out in certain ways. And, you know, not everybody fills that in right away. And I think that's where we see talent gaps. Um, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, and, and let me just quickly go back to you had said small companies. This is in huge corporations, um, you know, all size companies, any kind of business, because in the end, um, humans are the, in, you know, talent, employees, that's the human infrastructure of business. Right. And there's so much data out there how if it's not, you don't find the right people suited for the role, they're not going to bring their best results, even if they're the most talented people. But it's it not, you know, congruent with them and what they bring to the table, what the company needs. So it's just, this isn't just startup. This isn't just design. But I would say that in design, I think this community of design, strategy, innovation I know that our clients that we speak to, they can articulate this. They can notice when there's less congruency. And we're not just talking about one employer to one employee. This is an employer and the teams of all the different people, right? This org chart, this is, um, you know, there's a lot that employers have to, when you think about it, because we were just first talking about this one-to-one -one, as in, an organization, an employer, and a hiring manager to one person coming into this big org. Um, but if you think about it from an employer standpoint, there's a lot of different people to think about depending on how big your team is, right? Um, but also from the talent side, what we've actually taught, let me just say that what we've realized when we work with design professionals for them to realize how do, we, how do I serve my client and my employer even better and it's a realization of that duality. This is a duality concept, I think. It's the closest word that I have it to at the moment in the sense that it's understanding what I need as an individual, if I were an employee, to understand what my client, the organization, or my, the company that I join, what they need. So it's me, it's kind of self and external. 
self and others. And this, there's so many ways that this duality play, comes into place now. Um, if we're not seeing it in community and vaccine and COVID, self health and others health, right? This, this is not just protecting me, but protecting others. So, I mean, there's so many ways that this politics, I mean, community, health of each individual, but yet how, what is the health of the community? And as a community can't solve everything for everyone, but there's this interesting balance that as an individual, we need to be aware of. And as a leader of an organization, whether I run a town, whether I run a company, whether I run, you know, a charity, you have to think about that duality. Well, I think I'm getting like so existential. No, no, I, I, don't, I don't think so at all. Like there, I think there is, that's kind of like, I think the really deep thought piece to it. Cause one thing that uh, we've been discussing internally is just like, how are we approaching this idea of, of talent and employers working together? How are we making those connections? I think um, a lot of times what we see, what I've noticed, like working with you, Angela, is that a lot of times from our clients, we get like these lists of X, Y, Z requirements, whether it be experience or education, these very like, like not necessarily quantitative, but very quantitative data points of like yes. what this person should be, usually like painting some sort of like, you know, statistical unicorn here with all these particular dots that have to be connected, yeah. but very little is put to the type of person, you know, that certain, uh, the, the, those bits describe a individual, but mm -hmm. when we think about that person that needs to slot in there, we're kind of getting back to that point you said of like, even the most talented person won't necessarily thrive if they can't connect with the group overall. Yeah. And so I think that's an important piece that we are trying to spearhead as a group, as, as a talent searching agency, as we're trying to fit people into these teams. And so I'd like to hear your feeling on that piece of how we look at a person holistically and sort of help to work that into our conversations with our clients. Mm -hmm. Look, you know, I think it has to be said that, and I love the clients that come to us for this because they know this is, this is our jam. This is how we see this. It's first, um, the best analogies sometimes, I, I still go back to dating, right? That's the simplest one-to-one, -one, one entity to one, which is an easier correlation to make that comparison. When someone says, oh, find me the, the, the you know, person of my dream, my soulmate, and you go online and you look for people or you go out there and you find people. If you don't have that self-reflection of yourself and what who you are and where you are in your life and what will off balance you, you know, well, um, and it's not the most successful person or the smartest person or the nicest person or the prettiest person. There's a lot of nuance to this. Um, and you got to know yourself to know what that other person would be. So let me spin this now to employers. When companies come to us, actually, it's interesting because we've had so many conversations in all our years being in the design industry. And it's so, I mean, just our space. We've heard a lot of employers that can't sometimes take them up to two years to write a job description of what it is they need because it takes, there's no structure out there um, that really allows people to analyze if I need a design director, what kind of design director is that? And it's not just the keywords. Having been in this industry, have you been in the um, medical space? Have you worked on this kind of project? Have you 
built this skill. It's not just, you know, it's not just user experience or, um, you know, design management. It's, it's a whole nother layer beyond that. I think that for us, we have to look at first an employer and to say that department, what is missing in, you know, what's missing in that role. There's a lot of that work that we do, right? Where we're listening to employers to hear the different hiring managers or stakeholders, whether it's in the main hiring manager, you know, the VP, the head of engineering, head of marketing, or the design team sometimes, or even an HR obviously has a completely different perspective of that gap. Right. So we're getting that perspective. You know, you think about that human pyramid, let's say the hiring managers at top, but there are others that if there's a unusual puzzle piece and this gap is not a perfect circle, it's you don't even know the form of this piece yet, this gap. Right. So to understand the gap first. Right. We're talking about and then to and the clients that we work with, sometimes they don't necessarily having not gone through this. I, perspective of how to see this gap may not have the language yet or the clarity yet of what it is that they need, right? So as we get to work with them, there's the initial assessment, just like design is iterative, as we work with someone and as we start to show them what does exist out there, because a lot of times employers, hiring managers don't even know because they're walking their path, they only know their path, maybe in the company that they're working in, they only know that org system or that type of need. Maybe even in their own history as a VP or chief innovation officer, they only know where they've been. But we've seen so many different scenarios. We've seen design leaders in different places. So, or I'm just talking about that one particular type of opportunity we're working on. So it could be junior, it could be senior, it could be, and we're gonna talk about human factors today. I think I, th- I do think though you bring up an interesting point, Angela, and, and you're kind of getting around it. I just want to jump on that because yeah. one of the hardest things that I've seen, uh, even when we're working with uh, a lot of different clients and stuff like that, even, even to an extent, certain candidates, it's that idea, mostly from our client side, the employer side, of understanding how to see and evaluate potential. And I think that's like the hardest thing. Like, like we were mentioning before, there's usually like this laundry list of things that they want to have, and that doesn't necessarily equal somebody being able to live into that role, to go into right. that role. I think right. uh, one thing that you really like <clears throat> illustrating it when we were talking one time, a friend of mine, if he's listening, hi, Joe. Um, he shared a really interesting anecdote to me. He used like a baseball metaphor and he's like, okay, if we're looking at like, a, a, they want to bring a new player in, right? And there's one player, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're have equally great performance, but one's been doing it for years, has a lot of successful championships or World Series under the belt. I'm sorry, I'm not very good at baseball lingo, but they've done it all for years. The other one, just as good, can run as fast, can throw as fast, but really new in their career, not sure what they're doing. Who would you bring onto your team? And, and I fell for this too. I was like, oh, well, we're going to hire the champion. And he's like, huh? You're going to want to go with the greener player. Why? Because that champion has reached their apex. They've already won everything. For them, they're just going through the motions. They're going to do well. They're going to do great for your team probably. But for them, this is just the next step in their career. Whereas that newer player, that hungry player, is looking to achieve, is looking to get their wins, is looking to do what is necessary to kind of get into that and discover what their path is. And I think for employers, we, we, we miss that sometimes. Yeah. Well, okay, so there's different ways to, to see that. I absolutely agree with when you meet someone that they're, they're 
at their apex, kind of like that's their status quo. It's like they've reached, um, I've heard this term, they've, uh, there's a there's an HR term about hitting your max capacity of some sense, right? Of growth. Um, I'm going to come back to that though, because I, I think there's a, I, I'm going to discount that concept right away too, right? Um, because, well, let me just say that this is what we do when we work with someone who's at their apex. It's harder to, when you've got so many abilities to understand how to piece apart what that next step is and push yourself through that. And this is a lot of the work that we do. I love this work, right? But to your point, yes, if you're meeting someone young and they're already exhibiting that ability, God knows what else they're going to be capable of if you bring them in and groom them to what your or your team needs, right? Now, <clears throat> from an employer standpoint, I think a better, a different analogy to look at would be a sports that requires team collaboration on a much more intense level, whether it's basketball, soccer, football. Soccer, football, you've got very designated roles. So, so does soccer too. It's like, right? And the same, but but they, I think they slide in and out when they go on the offense and defense, right? So there's a little bit of that. That's the best um, part about rules is breaking them, right? Yeah, <laughs> actually. And how people break them, right? So that they can bend beyond, stretch and bend beyond their, their range. So you're right. Let's, so let me go to like, basically, yes, employers to understand what's right for them. Um, the best type of archetype of talent, let's say for a particular role, um, it, it's deciphering what that might, those general top three, five archetypes, right? Narrowing it down, meeting the individual, having that discussion with talent to say, how does that, how do I see future pace and see that individual in my company and how they might grow our department? Um, but you're right. To the other point of talent, a lot of times it's hard for employers to see talent. I mean, let's just talk about design is so multifaceted, right? It, it, it's so multifaceted, so complex today. It's hard enough for non-designers to try to qualify what design is. To look at something well-designed is one thing, but then to understand the process behind it that made it. To say, okay, we need this process, we need research, we need strategy, we need ideation, we need product development, we need you know production. So you could say those categories are, or we need management. It's like how high. It's kind of interesting because I feel like design is is, and I would say all design disciplines that, and I, I use that as the big D design when I say that is interesting because it is almost treated like a crafts a craft person skill set in a world that requires repeatable consistent results right so yeah. as as individuals like <clears throat> uh, and you know as all designers you know i'm a trained designer as well many of the people we work with angela are also a trained designer so we understand that feeling of like even as we're trained in school we're trained to be that craft person that company of one that is going to do anything and everything and then when we get to a point where we're large we need other people in there we have a tough time understanding that people have specializations, people have things they're good at, things they like to do, stuff that can help if we start maybe putting them in a little bit of a box, a box they're comfortable with for sure, yes. but helping them to structure and realize we can all support each other and share the load is where sometimes it's difficult as design organizations get larger to realize what that's going to look like and how to trust that people can do those things. 
You're sliding to a different topic about specialization as well. Sorry. Okay, well, two points, right? <laughs> designers as craft. Yes, designers as aesthetic, um, beauty, grace, and, and aesthetic sensibility. There's this, uh, you know, the old-fashioned notion, and you get a lot of businesses still today who don't get it. Like, oh, well, let me come up with the technology and the science and the hardware. Slap on the shape later, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that is the archaic older traditional conventional way of looking and realizing design but today designers it's think of all the multifaceted abilities you have to have aesthetic sensibility technical know-how the business the business of manufacturing right is it PL? is it um, manufacturing costs sourcing right is it dealing with marketing is it dealing with engineering is it dealing with customer experience and user experience to understand the user but then also bigger corporations it's even then listening to within a corporation all the people who build it the internal organizations user experience right or how those teams collaborate you know there's a lot that people don't realize and because humans i think are so visual i think that poor you know i think people who don't understand designers the first thing they're going to look at is oh they made something beautiful and so they don't know that creative professionals designers are not just many of them are not just artists, you know, there's so many, many abilities that allow them to solve so many, so many complex problems that businesses have, you know? It's right. I mean, no two designers are really going to be exactly the same. That's what makes, I think, especially from our perspective, <laughs> recruiting for design is so difficult because of that. Yes. I mean, yes. sometimes you would wish like, oh, can't we just hire like doctors where you can just measure it by <laughs> years of experience in the field and just be like, yeah, you're good. No, with design, I know. it's so difficult. Two industrial designers, two graphic designers, two UX designers, they're going to have maybe similar language, but they're going to have vastly different paths and experiences oh, that have flavored how they want to work. And then, and then to help an employer understand like what would be so unique about what each individual could bring to the table. And to then make some kind of cross comparison between, all right, well, this one could help us represent the company. This one could help us create better logistics inside the organization. This one would be a great leader, you know, a team, team builder, but what's the combination of what we need, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> you're kind of, you're making me think, I don't know, uh, uh, you're making me think of this like weird commercial, I don't know, what you were saying exactly. You know, like just for men, the hair coloring thing. A few years ago, they had this weird ad where they're like, they were starting their touch of gray dye where it's like it leaves a little bit of gray yeah. and so it's like two people doing a, a job interview and they're like thinking about the two people sitting outside one's an older guy with gray hair one's a young guy with dark hair and then they're they're talking to each other it's like hmm we need his experience but his energy <laughs> it's like <laughs> so like they're implying that by using this dye that has like a little bit of gray <laughs> hair you'll like you'll you'll have youthful exuberance and you know wizened years yeah <laughs> well Sadly, that is not, uh, not that that really hits up on. We are so, you know, it's human. We are so visual. We are so human in that way. So gauging talent, gauging by, and then to to notice our own perception or stereotypes, right, or judgments, and to release that to really see talent for what they can bring to the table and reveal below the resume, below the keyword. I mean, that's the same thing. The portfolio, it's like, how beautiful is the portfolio? When, I mean, I don't, so many stories that we'll have to get into. These, like, <laughs> that, in, that's another deep In following conversation. episodes, 
of how many times I've worked with some of the most brilliant design leaders, but their own visual um, tendency, our ability to notice beautiful aesthetics, almost, I mean, I don't know how many times I'm looking for a design leader, finding out that the role is not about executing the aesthetic sensibility anymore. At that high level, there's a certain type, uh, depending on the department and the company and their challenge and where they are, right? what they're trying to achieve next. It is not about aesthetic sensibility. You know, it's about knowing that leader, knowing how to find and build the right team. Who is it on the team that necessarily has it? It certainly would be amazing if every company, you know, their leader had that perfect je ne sais quoi, draw like an angel or aesthetic sensibility like um, Jonathan Eyes. But there's so yeah. Side note, we are not sponsored by Just For Men Gel. I just want to put that out there. It was a funny anecdote. So, you know, don't don't at me with, you know, I'm a Just For Men shill, okay? <laughs> yeah, ideology we cannot a- be bought. We are an independent organization. Can we do a spoof on that on Portfolio? Make it beautiful. Oh, we need that candidate. You know, I mean, that, 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 that. And then, then, then next to them, there's like, like this beautiful portfolio. Then next to it's like this hard bound, like book, but we need his technical expertise. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my God. The, but anyway, the whole episode um, that we'll get into on portfolios. So, yeah. So I, th- I think, and, and as we've been talking about, like designers can come from all kinds of flavors, can go down all kinds mm-hmm. of different paths. We've been working on a pretty interesting search uh, recently that I think really sort of brings this to the forefront in terms of like unique designer pathways, unique experiences designers can have. Let's get into it. Yeah. So this is a, um, medical device, uh, design company in Southern California. And what's really interesting about them. And I would say in terms of a client, um, they are, uh, just really interesting to speak with very reflective, very introspective. And, Part of that is because um, of what their mission is in particular in the medical device space. And that is uh, one thing that they kind of mentioned us, to us in a conversation that I just really feel says a lot about them is putting the human in human factors. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what they're doing is trying to make sure that they are the voice of the human that is going to be using these medical devices. They are about making sure that it works for them. It's safe for them it actually promotes health and promotes well-being. Um, and they do the full stack of their development process, like not necessarily all the way down to manufacturing, but of course they do a lot of the formative and summative testing around medical devices. Mm-hmm. And they have a huge human factors wing, of course, design and engineering roles within that. And they are all about doing excellent, real, impactful research. So much so that like they have control of the facility they do the testing in, the people that they speak with for the studies and making sure that all of their research staff are great at one major thing, which is connecting with the people they're studying. They are not numbers, these are individuals and using that to craft a story that also helps them on the back end, put together some great research and submissions to the FDA to make sure that their clients' products can really make it to market and be very successful. It's a very cool company. Um, I love when we get great companies like this that's growing and they, you know, they're growing, so they need more support. Um, And what I like about this company too, in in meeting the leaders, uh, the founders, the Mm -hmm. leadership team, um, is that they're very progressive in understanding how people themselves are evolving. 
I mean, they're, uh, let's talk about what they're looking for, their ideal, and then what they're open to as well, right? Um, and that their openness to this. Can you, Sean, can you, Sean, can you tell us about the rope? <laughs> let, me, let me pick up this rope and, and, and go with it, sure. Right. I so. forgot to hand it to you. <laughs> I'm like, I was gonna, yeah, it been, Let's I was talk about this, Sean. <laughs> so, um, Not the leader. Yeah. <laughs> that's the conch. That's, you have the conch. <laughs> I, I think as a point to our conversation, that's what makes Angela a leader that, you know, brings it like that. She gets paid the big bucks for this, this leadership potential here. Um, but like, so what's really um, interesting. So um, this is particularly specifically a human factors engineer role. And of course, human factors can mean a lot to a lot of different people. In fact, in many ways, our client has also talked to us as sort of looking at it almost as a human factor specialist in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And this particular role is about understanding how to take the in-depth research they're doing, working with real people, and helping them to make sure that those insights translate down the line, making sure that it makes sense from a product execution standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, from a usability standpoint, and especially that last one being incredibly critical. And so what they've been looking at, and if we say, what is the sort of expected ideal of this, right? Human factors is, of course, a very rich field with lots of professional organizations, lots of professionals out there. And of course, by that reasoning, also has majors and schools dedicated to the education of great human factors professionals. So yes, um, especially when this client came to us at first, they're like, okay, gotta be from X, Y, or Z program. Uh, if not background in cognitive science or psychology, like very much in that research mode, um, maybe definitely had a little bit of product development experience. So they would have had their hands on some things, maybe biomed engineering, like they were definitely looking at it in that sort of narrow scope space of what it's going to be to have a quote unquote, perfectly successful human factors engineer. And through our discussions with us, and I think especially with us bringing in a lot of experience of the wide spectrum of design professionals, um, Angela, of course, bringing this up of first and foremost, is that there are a lot of industrial designers out there who have this incredible deep sense of rigor. Um, I mean, of course, all designers, and I, I would say like the vast majority of designers uh, are very passionate about being that voice of the consumer, right? And this is that human piece of yeah. human factors. We are all about curating experience. No matter what kind of designer you are, we're about curating experience to achieve a positive effect, hopefully. And, um, yes. In you know, different ways. I want to hedge it there, but of yeah. course, I feel all designers <laughs> want to make the world a better place, yes. right? I don't want to exclude those who don't. But... <laughs> But uh, to, to, to joking aside, the idea here is that there are designers who um, through excellent experiences, through their own personal work, either through school or any sort of certification program, find themselves pushing more towards um, actually moving into more human factors related work. Go ahead, Angela. Well, and exactly to what you said, a lot there are, okay, first of all, there, um, let's now speak about the community and the industry of, and the community of designers. A lot of industrial designers get into executing human factors work throughout their career. In fact, there's some, and so this is not for every industrial designer, but those industrial designers that have moved into doing more human factors work, ergonomic research work, you know, not just 
looking at the form and how does something feel, but really getting into the data and the research of it. There are designers in the different careers, the jobs that they've worked in, the companies that they've worked for that have a little bit, that have that rigor where they've slid into doing this work. And while, so what I'm saying, what we're noticing here and what this podcast is about today is for so many designers that those that get into this kind of work to start to realize, could this, there is a path into human factors um, that some industrials, not everyone, some industrial designers are probably already doing this work and loving this work. And so that's, this is for any industrial designers that love this kind of work. So let's, Sean and I are gonna talk about what, let's start to piece apart who, what kinds of industrial designers are moving to this space, but then what kinds are not. Let's, let's, there's a, a migration here and a pivoting that's happening that I think so, there are certain designers that are naturally migrating into this space, but may not have that self-realization that they're doing that work, you know, because as an industrial designer, we can do so many different things. And sometimes employers and companies don't necessarily tell you that, yes, you're doing human factors work. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start, Angela. And um, the big one, I think definitely is um, understanding qualitative data and how to use that as, as part of insight. So our client has talked about that the vast majority of their research, even in their formative and summative testing does come down to uh, qualitative with a little bit of quantitative thrown in there once in a while, especially when it comes to running repeatable tests mm -hmm. and making sure that there's some kind of measurable output to, to put in a report or to report back to a client with. Um, but definitely designers who are in a situation where design research is really important, specifically design research with people, moderating actual human beings yes. and working with them to draw out some kind of result. Um, a lot of that comes down to, you know, some designers fall into it because they're great conversationalists. They're really interested in learning about people. These are the kinds of people who are going to move down this path. And these are the kind of people who would be successful, maybe pursuing a little bit of this path. Um, it's also going to be designers, like maybe you haven't necessarily done it in the medical context, but understanding how the research you've done, maybe for the consumer products you've worked with, or maybe for you know, the industrial products you work with, has a lot of translatable skill when it gets into medical. Because, you know, Angela, from our understanding of the field, one of the big distinctions in medical that is seen in a few other industries, but medical sort of stands out on its own a little bit in the sense of being a highly regulated space. To get certain devices through to market, it has to pass FDA muster. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, if you're an industrial designer who works in the medical space, chances are, if you've worked closely with the human factor staff, you're aware of the risk analysis, you're aware of all the uh, other analyses that go into submitting these products to the FDA. And so that is gonna be something where if you've had a lot of exposure, if you've worked with it a lot and you do a lot of research, you're gonna have a lot of those first few skills that really allow you to succeed in the human factors role. But let's say, Angela, let, let, let's go into a hypothetical here. Well, <clears throat> go ahead. Okay, say, say what you're gonna say and then I just wanna <laughs> go back to that. I'll, I'll dive into a hypothetical slightly here because I think it also bears saying is that like there are also other industries that have a lot of red tape you know, regulation to move through that also allow uh, someone in that design space maybe have that exposure. Um, one thing that we found a lot of people, um, for instance, if you've worked in the aerospace industry, there's also a lot of regulation that goes into aerospace products, which is going to be 
not exactly the same, but similar to what you're going to experience in medical. Mm -hmm. um, also, if you've done anything that um, requires a lot of regulatory oversight, like even in certain cases, working with food stuff, if you've dealt like with having to submit things that might touch somebody's body or be in contact with somebody's body. Kind of tools have... or hand ergonomics, or there's a lot of just subtle nuances of, you know, yeah. Right. Angles even and, and even to an extent, it's somewhat tangential to medical, but also working on surgical products, which can be a whole other beast in its own right, requires a lot of understanding on how people work and testing. So, um, but even still, I think we can also jump a little bit of a circle outward. Let's say you're a little bit farther back in your career. Maybe you are in a company or in a firm that is heavily driven by engineering rigor. That's a great yeah. place to start as well. Yeah. Because you're going to be learning, how do we test to know if something is strong enough? How do we understand if it can make this number of repetitions? Do we know that this angular mm. speed is going to damage this product? Those are important things. Those are important questions. And then what you learn from a lot of, as a designer, perhaps, the scientific, the engineering staff and working with them, you're gaining that knowledge of understanding what to look for, what to understand. Just because you're not somebody who's got a doctorate or a master's of engineering doesn't mean you can't be exposed to and understand a lot of the practical work necessary to make these things successful. And that's exact. I love your point there, Sean. That's exactly what we're noticing. There are designers that have built that rigor. Sometimes it's not the company that has pushed it. I've met, we've met um, amazing designers that they themselves have built that conviction knowing what that data and that research will bring a better quality, you know, a, a better understanding and clarity on what you're building, right? And so if you as a designer are pushing this data and even you go, your the compulsion to do it, even though your company may not even want it as much as you do, I find that a lot from designers who go, I have all this rigor. And then the client goes, yeah, thank you for the part. We're still going to make it like this. Yeah, I've uh, ha having having been in the field a bit myself, uh, I can pretty much run out of fingers and toes to count how many times that happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really interesting, like especially um, this is also a great opportunity. Let's say you are also a designer, and I know sometimes this is a path for a lot of uh, designers, especially a lot of industrial designers. You kind of end up in this role of design engineer. This is sort of an interesting sort of hybrid space. A lot of designers mm -hmm. have found their way into. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, from my <clears throat> personal experience, you know, I've met a lot of designers who are just like really hardcore, fantastic makers. And that sort of transitions into having a great understanding of material strengths, of structural shapes and how that structural geometry also affects the product works. Like people who have intuitively pulled a lot of that out and have turned that into a career, it is possible. <laughs> it is possible how remote it may seem for some people. It is possible. It is possible for experience to kind of pull your career in a new direction. And for people who've also fallen into that space, and maybe you've also come to a point where it's like, ah, you know what? Like, I need a new flavor. I need a new aspect of this that's going to give me that same energy, that same kick that I got from originally sort of moving into this unknown space. Human factors engineering uh, can be that bridge for you because that is what I think is important to also talk about, tacking engineer on the end. And this is something that we've been talking about with our client as well, uh, based on a lot of not only our discussions with them, but also understanding more about the industry is that when you have someone who is a human factors researcher or like very, very specifically a human factors specialist, they might be mostly on the research end. 
They're right. going to be somebody who is going to understand the psychology. They're going to understand the science. They're going to understand the mechanics. They're going to understand the usability analyses that allow someone to uh, conclusively say whether or not a process is easy to do or safe. But when you tag engineer on the end, um, it's somewhat of an archaic sort of tack on to the end, just based on where a lot of this scientific work comes from, because they're saying like, oh, okay, who are the, who are the scientists that do things? Oh, those are engineers. All right, put engineer on the end of that and we'll call it a day. Like that's, that's basically like what an engineer is, is a scientist who has to like make a thing. And um, that's what has led to this growth here. And so understanding what that means when they're tacking on engineers. So if anybody out there, not only for this role we're working on, but if you see one out there, you see human factors engineer, what they're implying is that this is somebody who's going to understand research, maybe mm -hmm. understand a lot of the, the focus that the research takes, but then how do we filter that research down into something that somebody can execute, right? How do we turn this particular insight of, oh, uh, the thumb doesn't have enough range on this joystick. How do we turn that into something actionable that we can actually prototype, execute, and test once more? Or what if it's, oh, on this screen, uh, people can't see the buy now button or they can't see the sign up button because they're looking for something red, but we've made it purple. You know, it can be something as, as, as strange as that. Those yeah. insights, how can we turn that into a prototype web page or web app that is going to allow the users to use it more effectively. And that is where the engineer comes into play. And I think as we've been talking, there's a lot of spaces where engineering and design and not just like industrial design to mechanical engineering, but also software engineering, um, you know, in rarer cases, there are other specific engineerings that kind of cross over, but those two in particular, there's a lot of crossover where a lot of the skills end up paralleling so much that a designer who's had a lot of training in that space can be very successful in the process. It, there's different ways to frame this type of role, right? Yes. In the, if someone were in the, and this is what we're talking about today, if, some, if you are an industrial, if someone out there is a industrial designer, if you've built that rigor and that, and for some industrial designers, they don't even have that term in their, in their own history. The companies don't call them that, but they have a design engineer bent combination to their ability, right? Being able to see that side of it, moving it through to execution. Absolutely. And to your point, like in this space, it's fascinating because in this kind of work, could it be an ergonomic issue? Could it be a cognitive um, perception issue from a customer or their, their end customer, right? Could it be, you know, there's so, there's a, there's so much to it, right? Um, a perception of aesthetic, even, you know, that, that comes into play, but that not in this space right now, it's more ergonomic and cognitive and, you know, behavioral. Right. But yeah, I mean, I so also if, if someone has been moving into the space, if you have found that you love this rigor, then human factors is another direction that um, designers can take. And, and I think there's a huge piece here, Angela, as well. Something that I think um, human factors traditionally is more in the science space. It's in the psychology, mm -hmm. the engineering, mm -hmm. cognitive science, even in some cases, neuroscientific realms. A lot of these people you're going to see in the space are PhDs and one very impressive science or another. But for designers moving into that space and what has been evolving more recently, especially with the advent of more software pulling into the human factors space, there's a huge advantage that mm -hmm. a lot of designers have. And it comes from the great, 
you know, hands-on skills that a lot of designers have. Um, a lot of human factors roles, you'll see, oh, you need somebody who can storyboard, somebody who can sketch, somebody who can understand how to quickly visualize something so we can understand if it works or not. And guess what? Like, designers have that in spades. You know, yeah. a lot of, uh, a lot, especially if you look through portfolios of people who are in the sort of human factors tangential space, you can see where they're, you know, sketching human anatomy and how it's going to interface with their product, showing clients, showing their coworkers, like, this is what it's going to mean, or this is what it could look like, or this is what, those visualization skills are so valuable, especially for a scientist whose most advanced program might be like mini tab or MATLAB, you know, like, like they're kind of working with those tools yeah. and they're not comfortable, like putting together a storyboard that shows the sequence of use. Whereas designers who are open to it, they can just sort of slap that together. And they have added so much to that process. They've helped to be so much richer because of those unique skills that come into the process and more and more human factors um, jobs are not only asking for those skills, human factors schools are reacting to those needs and kind of pulling more of that, especially schools that um, have like art departments as part of their uh, yeah. uh, campus. They're gonna, they're pulling more of those art skills in. So as designers, if you are also pulling into that as well, you come with those skills or you come with the capacity to really do those things, certainly consider how those are value added skills. So who cares if you're not a doctor of neuroscience? You're somebody right. who knows how to visualize and bring an idea to life. And for a lot of companies, that is such a valuable skill. And you know, I've worked with people with PhDs and sometimes they're like, wow, like you, you brought that to light so quickly. How the heck did you do that? Like, you know, it, it's interesting how right. sometimes right. it's such a foreign skill <clears throat> that adds so much to the process. So this is not in the end designing necessarily, you know, it, 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 well, so much of this work is those initial stages of designing, right? Narrowing down what is and what isn't about what, what the client needs to make and what the consumer, the, the end user, you know, re responds to best or not, right? And I think um, one thing that the client has shared that like, as they're exploring different talent, if there's, they, they, they had kind of said to us, if somebody is really showing this aptitude where they're like excellent at making these transitions that move right into design, like if that means they're going to tick up the design meter a little bit on how much you're going to collaborate with the design team, that's going to happen. And that's what's great about uh, this particular client, because they are not only open, like you said, Angelo, to exploring different backgrounds of talent, different ways talent has come to them, but they're also flexible in terms of what this role is going to mean for somebody, because there's a lot of insight transition that's going to occur. They understand like, hey, maybe they want to focus more on the research and that's what they're going to do. And they're going to help frame those insights so people can pick up and run with them. But maybe they're also a person who also wants to help in that transition to the design and engineering teams and really kind of embed with them to make sure the insight is seen all the way to the end. Like, because they're sort of a, a small to mid-sized company as they stand, uh, they have that flexibility and appreciate that flexibility in their talent because they understand that it helps them perform better if they can respect the individual who's coming to them. And that is something that I think is incredibly valuable to see an employer, somebody who they're not just going to, when you, when you sign the offer letter, that job description isn't a contract that says you're locked into this rail forever. Right. They want to see that you're passionate and they want to let your passion help execute your work more effectively. They're in growth mode. 
So as this company grows, there will be more areas and gaps that will need to be filled so someone can really evolve here. And this kind of employer, the, the leadership team is just, I love when, when you meet a company where the leadership team understands that talent evolves, you know, that someone, when they come to that company at that moment, they're not just who they are at that moment, but that a year or two, five years down the line, what will they evolve into? And to be able to say, you know, while we grow and evolve and while you're growing and evolving, where are the spaces for you to, you know, find opportunity here as you shift in your you know, evolution of what you're thriving, working on, right? And I think to also answer your question, Angela, like who would this sort of not be for, if we want to mm. just be upfront about what kind of yes. person would not fit for yes. this, like this is more of a research role. So if you're not really attracted to rigor and repeating tests and going through lots of data and studies, it's not going to be something for you. But mm. also if you're a designer who's like, really obsessed with making sure this radius perfectly blends into that front surface. Like if you're that kind of specific about your surfacing, like, you know, you might not find all of the value that you would like out of a role like this. Um, definitely, you're going to want to be somebody who loves research, who loves rigor, and most importantly, like loves understanding and helping people. And I think that's really the big takeaway from this. If that's a passion of yours, human factors, and kind of the opportunities in that space can be something that will be very, very fruitful for you. Not to mention just a side about pivoting into that space for anyone who is an industrial designer or industrial en design engineer. If you're on that track and you love rigor more than your company does, more than your team does, but more than the company requires it, um, Human Factors, by the way, is a great track, financial compensations are um, very interesting and, you know, higher in some respects. If you're, if that's your space, you, people can earn a lot more money there too. Once they know that that's their jam. There's so much about this, What we're looking at here for this client and what I love about this opportunity that we get, that's why we're spending time to talk about this is a company uh, that sees raw talent in that sense. To Sean's analogy earlier, um, while you're not necessarily the young baseball player rookie, but are you moving into the space, but you haven't claimed this title of human factors yet? And they're open to looking at people who may not have put that title on themselves yet, but maybe they, are, you know, you call yourself an industrial designer, but you've got, you've already built that um, expertise through hands-on experience. Um, if anyone is interested in this and wanting to know if this pivot might be, um, if they're to talk to us and find out maybe you've already done it, maybe you've already been doing this work, but you just didn't have that title. Um, we would love to talk to you and see if this is something that you might wanna migrate into. Just so you know, also we do have the link to the job description down below. So you can, it's so funny when you do these things, uh, take a look at the link down below to see if this is um, something that you're interested in. Okay. Angela, thank you for pointing down on an audio <laughs> medium. That'll really make sure everybody finds it. So, and for the listener at home, she's now pointing everywhere. So, you know, she's confusing the listener. So that's not good. But All right. it is good for you to right. check out the links below. And uh, we would love that we're to- we're taking from YouTube or video to audio. <laughs> I think you remembering that. But always check out the links below and uh, you can find more information, including the job description and links to apply. 
Uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you. And even if this isn't the journey that you're going on, we'd still love to talk and learn about people. We're always interested in meeting people, learning where their journeys are and what they're looking for, because, you know, we hope we can help out everybody we can. Thanks, Sean, for having this discussion with me today and hope you guys uh, enjoyed this discussion about this kind of pivot and all that and how employers, you know, are good companies, great companies when they see talent in their evolution. Um, what a great environment that can be for anyone you know, to work in. All right. Hope you guys have a great day. We'll speak to you guys later. Bye, Sean. Bye-bye.